remain standing for the reading of the gospel. In Mark's gospel, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 26, and he, being Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is if a rich one should write, I'm sorry, if, if one should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should sprout and grow, he knows not how. The earth produces of itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? For what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Be seated. I'm going to ask some folks in the choir to help me with this. I've warned them not to go to sleep yet. So, This is an Altoid tin. There are no Altoids inside. And what's in here has no hope of ever becoming an Altoid. But I want to ask them what they see and what this is. No, they're not tea leaves. Tobacco. My ancestors just rolled over in their graves. <laughs> These are redwood seeds. They're so tiny, there are hundreds of them in here in this small tin. And from these tiny seeds will grow the largest living things on earth, trees that reach heights of 300 feet and live to be 2,000 years old. It amazes me still to hold such possibility in my hand. Our passage talks about mustard seeds and big shrubs. The black mustard plant grew to about the height of a horse and a rider. Think Justify and a jockey. I've never seen one, but I have looked at the redwoods and gotten dizzy looking up at their towering height. And I think the redwood is just as instructive as is the mustard seed. Now hold on, please, to that image of the redwood for a few moments. Because when I think about the smallness of the seed, I want to ask a question. Have you ever felt like a seed? Small, inconsequential, one in a gazillion? Who could ever separate your identity from the masses, from the billions of people on earth? Ever felt like something that was just thrown on the ground? Just stuck in the dirt? Suffocating? Buried? With no dream of possibilities beyond the dirt? That may sound harsh, 
Mark's gospel was written to the early church before it was ever intended for us. And those were people who felt like seeds, trampled and choked. And oddly enough, Mark's gospel tells this same story twice and throws in another parable to boot. It's like there's something important here, so I'm going to tell you twice. One emphasizes the kind of ground that the seed fell on, rich soil, stony soil, thorny soil. Another emphasizes what happens to the seed, and another emphasizes how tiny the mustard seed is. And they're meant to speak to people who are dwarfed by Roman power and values, who are taxed at will, not their will, but the Romans' will. Where crosses dot the countryside with grisly reminders of how they'll die if they dare to resist. Where the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies just doesn't seem to be working out so well. Where the teaching of Jesus to practice forgiveness is just brushed aside by a government that never apologizes for anything. And they are a people, powerless, before a state that occupies their homeland and threatens to occupy their minds and their souls. A lot of folks are marginalized today, like the first readers of Mark's gospel. Bullying marginalizes people. Lying marginalizes people. Prejudice marginalizes people. There are people who've had the courage to come out to their parents and found themselves disowned, marginalized. There are people who have the misfortune of having the wrong color skin and they're marginalized. Many of us know these things, these feelings of powerlessness, this feeling of being threatened and unwanted. And I think Mark's gospel says some things to us. It speaks to us, I think, of a vision of God. Not this narrow, only for my group God, this touchdown Jesus God who cheers for our touchdowns but not the other team. But no, this, this is a God who just throws out the sacred everywhere. Stony ground, thorny ground, good ground. Lots of places where you'd never expect the sacred to take root. And they're still trying to wrap their minds around that. And Mark writes to remind them of that kind of God. Years ago, I met a woman in the south end of Louisville who took in a man who was dying with AIDS. But I want to talk about that woman. She said, nobody should have to die on the streets alone. And he had no place. And she took him in. Even though, as she said, her neighbors would burn her house down if they knew he had AIDS. It'd make a really nice story if I could tell you that he was converted and he had faith and he gave up being angry and he was no longer alienated, but that's not the case. But he did die on clean sheets, attended to a kind and courageous woman. One who sowed the seeds of her compassion everywhere. 
like the vision of God Mark talks about. And Mark points them also to an understanding that growth takes place even in those dark places. When I was a pastor, before I was a chaplain, I'd get these programs sent to me about church growth, and there were books about church growth, and they were always organized and controlled and step by step by step. You do this and this and this, and you get church growth. There was never anything about this willy-nilly seed-sowing everywhere and waiting kind of church growth. But this is not about institutional church growth. This is about increasing the place where God's love is known and practiced, the realm of God. And Mark is saying, trust that the sacred will grow, no matter how tiny you feel at this moment. Trust that it will grow. In the silent times and the dark places. It's a lot easier to stand here robed in some kind of respectability and trust and urge you to do it as opposed to actually do that trusting in the silent times and the dark times. And so I just wonder, how are the marginalized helped by this assertion to trust that God's doing the growing in the dark and the silence? I think it has to do with hope. Marginalizing makes for fear. Fear pushes us to think in terms of survival. Fear trips us up so that we can only look at our own bruises and the abrasions of our own souls. But here is this this encouragement to look up, that there's more to come, and to, to live toward that more, to look around at the other bruised souls that are with you. To understand that this present moment is not the final word. It's hard. But faith is not easy. And I think it has to do with compassion. When things are tough, I need to be reminded to learn. Our Muslim brothers and sisters have just finished their time of Ramadan. There are 40 days of fasting. It's a tough time during the summer days when the daylight is long. From sunup to sundown, they don't eat. And the purpose of that is to remind them what it feels like to be poor and hungry. The purpose is to increase their compassion, to learn in the suffering. Or maybe like Job in the Old Testament, when all is stripped away, the question is there, who am I? If I'm not my prestige, not my position, not my reputation, not my job, who am I? And he's reminding them that we're gods, daughters and sons of the Most High God. And he reminds them of this grand vision, this talks about mustard seed that becomes this great shrub where the birds of the air come and they nest in its shade. The birds of the air is a euphemism for all the people of the world. At that time, they divided birds into clean birds and unclean birds. But not here. It's just birds. 
We divide people into clean and unclean still. You're the right skin color. You're from the right nationality. My ancestors on my mother's side came from Norway, apparently to escape the Norwegian winters, and that was a good enough reason, and they were welcomed. My brothers and sisters from Honduras and other places in the South whose skin is brown, who flee abusive parents and families, who flee civil war, who flee starvation, who flee murderous gangs, are met at the border and rewarded with the taking of their children. And it is obscene. Here, this vision is of all the birds, all the people, a place to build a home, a place of safety, a place of belonging, security. I started by talking about redwood trees. They get so tall. A few years back, somebody said, I wonder what it's like up there. We just always assume it's like the tops of the trees that we can see. But nobody had actually been up there, so a couple of enterprising young people. I assume they're young because they climbed the tree and they made a camp, nice tree house. That's a tree house to brag about. And what they discovered was an entirely new ecosystem that nobody knew existed. Because we're here on the ground, we can't see all that's up there. I recently read a book entitled Nightingale. And the last time I mentioned a book by this author, my daughter was here, and she put both fingers in her ears because she was reading the book and she didn't want to hear me talk about it. So this is your heads up if you want to put your fingers in your ears. This is the time. About two sisters. It's a fiction. It's a work of fiction. Two sisters in France prior to World War II and during World War II when the Nazis are threatening The older sister counsels that, that we need to be calm. We need to make rational decisions. But the younger, the 19-year-old sister, is full of fire and vim and vigor. And she wants to resist the Nazis. And then the Nazis invade France, their country. The older sister still says, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Our soldiers will fight them. The younger sister finds her way to the French resistance. The older sister is still there. And then the Nazis come to her village. And then a captain of the Nazis commandeers her home as his place to live and makes her serve him. And then the word is out that the Nazis are coming for the Jews. And her best friend down the way her best friend is Jewish. And a couple of months ago, she gave birth to a baby. And she begs this woman who is counseled to be calm. She begs her to take her baby. And she does. She takes the baby and finds those she can get to forge papers. And she adopts the baby, claims him as her own. 
And her life gets worse and worse and worse. And then the Gestapo colonel comes and commandeers her house, and he's nothing but cruelty. But other people find their way somehow to get in touch with her and ask her to protect their children, to take them even as they themselves are taken away. And she can't see an end to this war. She can't see how the Nazis are ever going to go away. She can't see anything good, but she's going to do the next loving thing that's right in front of her. She's going to protect this child. She acts out of this vision when you can only see a little bit. And it is great faith. He reminds him of his vision, this place in heart and mind and soul where all find a home and belonging and safety. I hope we hear our own responsibility for pursuing that dream that we stop the hideous, hideous practice of separating children from their parents at our borders. I encourage us to believe there's a God who keeps working in these dark times and these times that are way too silent. Amen.